This is the Feminine Genius Podcast, a podcast that celebrates all women of God and their unique genius. I'm your host, Rachel Wong. Sister Josephine is a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth with an incredible journey. She was raised Baptist, studied political philosophy, and worked for a time in the banking industry. But during her time in banking, she had a desire to be a woman of God, and that desire led her to the Catholic Church and ultimately her vocation as a religious sister. In this episode, Sister Josephine shares that incredible story of how she became Catholic and a religious sister, her passion for serving children as a counselor, and the important truth that our God is a God of abundance and not scarcity. Hi, Sister Josephine. Hi, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. I mean, once I saw your smiling face come up on the screen, I was like, ah, forget (laughs) all of the worries, man. Like, here we are. And yeah, so thank you for being here with me and for coming on the Feminine Genius Podcast. I'm excited. I'm excited. Feminine and genius are two words you could spend a lifetime unpacking. Oh, amen. (laughs) Good podcast subject. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm super biased, but I love it a lot. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. And uh, for those who may not know you, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and share a little bit about what you do. Sure. I'm Sister Josephine. I'm a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth. I'm a native Texan, and I'm privileged to still be living in Texas and ministering here as a sister. So yeah, born and raised in Houston, and the other half of my life lived in Dallas. I'm a graduate of the University of Dallas, which is a Catholic school. I'm a convert, so I converted a couple of years after graduating from college. Before becoming a sister, I spent a long time in the banking industry, was was in leadership at the bank, uh, and now I'm a licensed counselor in Texas. I work with kids in a school half the time, and then with teenagers and adults in a private practice the other half of the time. Hmm. What I find so incredible just from that introduction alone is how many diverse facets there are of your identity and yet who could have lined it all up but the Lord uh, to bring you to this point. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm super excited. And I was wondering, you mentioned that you you went to a Catholic university, but you were you were raised Baptist and you had right. a conversion to the faith. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your own faith journey, you know, being raised a Baptist and I guess at what point it was that you realized that, oh, like there's something to the Catholic faith and I want to learn more. I want to and and eventually convert to the faith. Sure. Um, So I I actually loved growing up Baptist. I still listen to gospel music all the time. Someone the other day I was pulling up to visit a friend and he was like, did you have your radio blaring? And I said, yeah, but it was gospel music. (laughs) (laughs) Judgy. Um, I don't like this is such a um a part of my my life that I feel like is a gift. I don't regret that. I was introduced to the Catholic faith a couple times. So I'm adopted by my aunt and uncle. And my uncle is my uncle by blood, and my aunt is my aunt by marriage. She is from the Caribbean, a small country called Dominica. She grew up Catholic. 
And although they raised us Baptist, she kept some Catholic practices that I didn't understand as a child that I understand now as, as a Catholic woman. So she passively introduced me to the faith. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to University of Dallas, I was, you know, overtly <laughs> introduced to the faith at that Catholic school. So I ended up there on happenstance. I didn't know it was Catholic. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, I just thought it was nice people and small enough um, and not too far from home, but far enough. I got to live in Rome for a semester while a sophomore at the University of Dallas. And so got to encounter Pope St. John Paul II. And I think that's what was the initial captivation was this preacher. Like I saw him as such a great preacher. It's just every chance I got, I would go listen to him speak and then really started to get a sense of the church over time and realize that because I was taught to love God, I was taught to love Jesus, but it felt like I could do that for a lifetime in the church. Like the church would always keep me asking questions. And that felt great to me um, to be in a place where I could not possibly figure it all out. Yeah, when I graduated from college, I mean, in college, I was a party girl. I was not like Miss Religious things. <laughs> Just wanted to have fun. Um, but when I graduated and started working in banking, I had a really distinct desire to be a woman of God. But at that point, I missed the mass. And so I entered the church. Um, my family was there. It was a really joyful day. It, you know, wasn't a lot of drama to that. So that's how I came to the, the faith. Yeah. I mean, you just casually name drop Pope St. John Paul II, who, as you might imagine, is a pretty uh, big deal on this podcast, given that he was the one that wrote Letter to Women. Did you know that, and this might be a silly question, but did you know, I guess, like his significance in the church at the time? Or was it just like you said, he was so captivating as a speaker and as a preacher? No, I did not understand what a pope was. When we got on the bus the first morning, to go to the Vatican and people were saying we were going to St. Peter's. I did not quite understand what they were talking about. Right. (laughs) It was really, I had no sense of the Catholic church. I didn't grow up. Sometimes people are like Protestants are out to get Catholics. From my (laughs) Protestant perspective, we didn't ever even think about or talk about Catholics. It was just not on the radar. So I think sometimes we could be a little egocentric as Catholics to get everybody's looking at us. And sometimes that's the case, but my upbringing... There was no consideration of what Catholics thought, did, said, nothing. (laughs) So I had no sense, no sense of a Catholic identity, you know? Mm Right. And and like I was mentioning to you before we got going, um, like, I think it's one thing for and I've talked to many women who are converts to the faith. And of course, you know, to that, I say, welcome home. And God bless you for just being able to to be so docile in a very unique way, right? Because mm-hmm. in many ways, it's stepping, I don't want to say stepping away from, because like you said, there's a lot of beauty to like your Baptist tradition and how it's formed and molded your faith and how it is that you've come to know God. So I don't want to say step away as if there's like a break or separation, but still there is a lot of faith that's required to move into something that might be totally unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. So then there's that, which is in itself a huge gift and step. But you take it one step further and you you discern a religious vocation and you become a sister, a religious sister. And and like I said to you, that was one of the well, one of the many things I think of your story that just really captivated me. 
So I guess the natural question is, in between the time that you entered the Catholic faith and then entering into the convent, how did that happen? How did you get in touch with the congregation? Or, or maybe there were a couple congregations that you discerned with. But in any case, how did you hear that call to be a religious sister? Mm-hmm. I really, I discerned with the sisters that I'm with now. And it wasn't until later that I visited around. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like a Match.com convent <laughs> where I was shopping around. That's a whole other podcast on like how we mistakenly treat discernment like we have to date every congregation in the world um so it was funny because like when I became Catholic my family was super supportive like again I had an aunt who was very much like steeped in a Catholic identity there was joy in her and she has since returned to the church after my final vows she returned to the church Uh, my first vows after my first vows and but my family in general are super practical people so when I entered the church, they were like, oh, she's cute. You know, she loves Jesus. We love him too. You know, but when I started talking about being a nun, then all the opinions came out. (laughs) They're kind of like the pot got stirred. And so I entered the church in 2005. And in 2008, at the end of 2008, I had a chance to go back to Rome. I sang with the choir while I was at University of Dallas, and it was a Latin liturgical choir. Wow. And I really credit being a part of that choir for my like initial catechesis you know because we would sing the mass and it was a really catechetical experience we would sing you know special special works for the seasons in the church liturgical seasons in the church and so it was catechesis you know we sang Fares requiem we sang the tritium and so um it was just a huge like being almost immersed in the in the life of the church to sing it and so I got to go back to Rome with that choir and I was now Catholic (laughs) so I made a confession at St. Peter's and went to mass and in that confession I confessed something that had been on my conscience for a long time and it was the um what was on my conscience was to like take a more intentional role in serving the church. Like it had been on my conscience to like be intentional about sharing my gifts in the life of the church, but I was lazy and I just didn't, you know, want to do anything. And so I was confessing that. And the priest told me, he said, just begin. Um, and I was you know, crying cause I'm a crier. Um, so when I came back from that trip, I got a spiritual director cause I could tell that something was different and I didn't know what it was mysterious. I needed someone to help me treasure it. I think sometimes we have spiritual experiences and we don't know how to treasure them and like foster and nurture them um, so that they can bear the fruit that God intends. So I got a spiritual director to help me with that. And that's that dialogue with that spiritual director is where this like awareness of this vocation was born. He taught me to pray. I didn't really know how to pray. (laughs) He taught me to pray. And he taught me, encouraged me to talk to God about what God had in mind for my life. And when I started to do that, I thought about serving as a sister. It was so shocking to me, um, but it would not go away. And so that's how the the awareness of this vocation came. 
I'm saying it way more calmly than it actually was. It was super traumatic. But uh, <laughs> uh, I had a friend and then right around the same time, I didn't tell anybody. I only told my spiritual director and my counselor. I got a counselor about all of this, but I hadn't told anyone else. But I had a friend who was discerning and she asked me to be her wingman for a discernment retreat. And so I went <laughs> and I ended up being her maid of honor. And that first discernment retreat I ever went to was with the Sisters of the Holy Family of Nazareth. And I continued to visit them for two years and got to know them and understand the life. Um, And then after two years, I entered as a candidate. So that was in 2011. So 10 years this November. Oh, praise God. Yeah. That's incredible. (laughs) Now, for those who may not be familiar with your congregation, the Sisters of the Holy Family of Nazareth, beautiful name, by the way. What a beautiful name for a congregation. If you could share, I guess, like the charism and the the spirituality, I know that's a huge question. Sure. So we have a, one of the traits of our charism is hiddenness. And I tell the sisters, we're too good at that. (laughs) Give me a little bit less hidden. (laughs) So our mother founder, she's blessed in the church, blessed Mary of Jesus, the good shepherd is her sister name. And her baptismal name is Francis Shidliska. And the miracle that attributed to her beatification was the miraculous saving of the life of a mom and a baby, a mom who was giving birth to a baby. And so uh, our mother founders was captivated by the love in the Trinity. So the exchange of love in the life in the Trinity. And she wanted to devote herself to that being in the world. Like she knew this was the mission of God, that the love in the Trinity be spread throughout the world until we are united as one family, right? She looked to the Holy Family as the icon of Trinitarian love in the world. And so she said, where there is a family spirit, God's love reigns. And so she wanted her sisters to foster a family spirit among ourselves and among others particularly in service to families, for the renewal and sanctification of family life. Um, So that's our charism. And we were commanded by the spirit through her to never say we will only do that in one ministry. So we can never say we will only nurse, we will only teach, we will only whatever. She said, you will only respond to the present needs of the church. (laughs) What you will do. So our sisters have really varied ministries based on the needs in their local church where they're serving. Um, And in our lifetime, our sisters tend to have multiple ministries. So when you meet a sister of the Holy Family of Nazareth, especially if she's been in the community a long time, she'll often tell you, I've been a DRE. I've been a college professor. I've been a social worker. (laughs) Like just whatever the needs of the church were. So. Right. And you currently are a licensed counselor. So you, you know, you're working with uh, a lot of school students, but also like you mentioned that you work with families as well, like with for counseling or? Sure. Yeah. So I see all ages. My youngest client right now is nine and my oldest client is in her 60s. (laughs) So yeah, I work with all ages. Kids really delight me. So I've developed a specialty with children and adolescents. Um, And I specialize in trauma as well. So the healing of trauma really fascinates me. Mm -hmm. I'm reading here that you you studied political philosophy with a business concentration. So in my mind, it's like the furthest away from the work that you're doing now. When it came to that transition, and I'm guessing that this happened kind of parallel to that vocational journey, Mm -hmm. but wasn't... 
I don't know. I guess like my question or, or the, the thought that's coming to mind is like, was it hard to let go of, you know, all of the years of study that you had put into that plus the career that you had built up and now to transition into something that, yeah, might to the untrained eye or the outside eye be entirely different. Mm-hmm. So we we have this, us humans, we have this, and I think it's a part of original sin, like this economy of scarcity, hmm. you know, where we look at things with, with a scarce lens and God's is an economy that's abundant, you know, packed down and overflowing, right? It's how scripture says. And so nothing has been wasted. The mm-hmm. skills that I acquired at the bank, when I tell you how they have been flooded in use in my community, like none of them have been lost. So I was a project manager for the bank. My first two ministries after the novitiate, the reason I was able to do them was because of my project management skills. So I did marketing and public relations for our retreat center. And then I took over marketing and office administrative duties for our vocations director. And I redesigned all of our marketing material for our vocations stuff, right? This, all these skills came from being a project manager at the bank. And so it felt that way. When I left my job at the bank, that's one of the things I grieved most deeply in saying yes to my vocation. When I left that job, I was crying so hard I couldn't drive my car because I was in this mindset that it was gone. And like, meanwhile, it was being transformed by the spirit who is given freedom when we say yes. And so I was grieving, thinking something was gone. And meanwhile, the spirit was making it new and like putting it at the service of the kingdom. And so I can assure you those business skills, I designed a program, a counseling program for our grade school here. There was no existing counseling program. If I only had the education of a counselor, I could not have done it. I couldn't have written a grant. I couldn't have put together um, the website. I couldn't have, you know, done all those things without those skills from the bank. So like God picks it up and uses it. You know, he has a different kind of way of balancing things. The political philosophy degree from University of Dallas, it's actually political philosophy. And I remember when I went with my superior to look at schools, she was walking with me and we were talking about my bachelor's and how would it relate to this counseling degree and I was like yeah it's so weird she said oh no it's not she said now that I look at what you studied you are studying the thought of societies and now you will study that on the individual level and I looked at her and I was like you're absolutely right in political philosophy we looked at the formation of societies and what motivated societies and what you know motivated people to form societies and what types of motivations and ways of thinking brought about maladaptive behaviors in societies and what healed it. And she was like, that will very much fit with going on to be a counselor. And I was like, wow, I would have never even thought of that if she hadn't said that to me. So I can, I can tell you, yes, it was so painful because I was operating like not with kingdom vision. I thought it had to be lost and left Um, in order for me to move forward. And it was more like it had to be given over to be transformed and made new for what was ahead. Mm. 
there's so much goodness there like the the whole scarcity versus abundance the fact that god is in the abundance and not the scarcity is certainly a theme that i think has resonated through especially recently and especially given the the craziness that we find ourselves in with this pandemic so absolutely all of that and then just something that is coming to mind as you're talking about how was it your superior that had pointed out just the the relationship between your bachelors and the work that you would eventually mm-hmm. do? I believe it was John Paul II that said, you know, as the way of the family goes, so too will society. Amen. And I just love that connection, like just given the community that you're in. So again, how perfect that is. See how, you know, you had that very macro scale only would have come up since you had studied it in university and how you're able to bring that, you know, through the charism, through your work as a as a sister, like that family mindset. And then, of course, like you said, to the individual in your counseling practice. Just how magnificent that is. Like, God did that. That is That's abundance. That's, that's, that's abundance. Yeah, like the look on your face right now is the look that we have when we encounter abundance. Because it doesn't make sense. Because we, you know, we just don't, when we don't think like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> So currently, like you work with children and adolescents, you have that particular affinity. And you also mentioned something interesting about healing of trauma. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little more, what it is, I guess, about that, which I think to many people, myself included, I hear that and I I feel my heart racing. And I'm like, oh, that's a very scary thing to tap into. And obviously, it takes a lot of, you know, from a counselor's perspective, a lot of grace to work through. Um, because like, yeah, these are people's lives and, you know, humans are messy. Things happen. We are not perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, like what is it about that area of, I guess, like counseling or, or mental health, mental illness that fascinates sure. you? Yeah. And I want to, like, I first just kind of want to, anybody else's heart who's racing, it's okay. Like when I said I was going to specialize in trauma, I went back to therapy. Like, I was like, there's no way I can specialize in trauma and not be like super connected in my own therapy as well. Like, because it is messy and it does like make our hearts race because um, it's a lot. And I had to reflect on it myself because I, I was attracted to it before I understood why. I just knew that like when I was in trauma class or when I was reading books about trauma or writing papers about trauma, like I could feel myself kind of come alive and like more of my gifts like flourish. Um, So I knew I was attracted to it as a specialty, but I had to really pray to understand what was going on there and probably will continue to need to pray to understand it fully. What I've come to understand is like in a lot of cases, experiences of trauma are contrary to what the human person was made for. Um, So in some cases, in some types of trauma and many types of trauma, what happens is like the, the human person is experiencing something that is, is directly related to sin in the world. And so, and the impacts are like, they like result in, in an absence of freedom. Like those symptoms are an absence of freedom that the human person was not made for. So when I get to be a witness to this healing, for me, however, you know, everybody's healing is different. And God heals how he wants to heal and when he wants to heal. Um, and so I know it's hard for us. Like we look at one person and they're like, why do they get to be there? And I'm still struggling over here. Well, God heals when he wants and how he wants. But when I get to see any healing, it's the opposite. So it's like a restoration of 
what the human person was made for and who God says they are. And so it's like being in front of a miracle. And so to get to see that over and over again is like little glimpses of the resurrection, which is a really central image in my own um, spirituality. And I think to be able, hope is also a central image in my own like personal kind of personal devotion and spirituality. Hope though requires the absence of something. Like if we didn't, if we weren't missing something and if we weren't at a loss for something, we could not hope. There would be nothing to hope for. That work is also full of hope, which resonates with me. But it is, when you see a person have any healing from trauma, it's like a miracle just happened before your eyes. And um, you see like dignity restored. It's really life-giving for me to be able to kind of serve God as he facilitates that healing. So, mm-hmm. And I can only imagine what that must be like to see that, especially in, you know, in all people, of course, but especially in young people, yeah. right? Yeah. Just, just because it's, I don't know, I think about children and the last thing that I would hope for any child is that they'd have to endure anything that just seems, you know, quote unquote, like adult, like, you know, and of it's course, contrary. no one, like, right? contrary, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's like nobody, of course, nobody should endure trauma because, like you said, it there's like that direct correlation to sin in the world and the like our own fallen nature. But it's devastating to me that children sometimes they find themselves at the receiving end of yeah immense pain because of adult decisions or or whatever mm-hmm. is going on in their family life. But yeah, but to see that and to witness that, like you said, that restoration, the beautiful image of the resurrection, um, being able to see people come alive must be something incredible. It's really the first time, you know, you try to be the counselor who doesn't cry, right? <laughs> so the first time, because uh, one of the types of therapies that I use with kids is called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a really bad name for it. It's not CBT. It's a, all kinds of modalities put in one to like to help facilitate this healing. And it's got a huge narrative therapy component, hmm. like the ability to help a child develop a story. And so instead of the trauma pervading the whole story, the trauma is given its place in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the child is given tools to help try to like make meaning beyond the trauma and then invited to share this new narrative with someone they trust. As a counselor, we get to be there when they share this narrative with someone they trust. And typically we've prepared that trusted adult. <laughs> it's not the first time they've seen the narrative but the child usually doesn't know it, that they've that the adult's seen it before. And so it really just kind of facilitates like a, a healing encounter for the child. Like I can share this story and it can be received and I can be like strengthened in it. And so the first narrative, you know, I set in as a counselor, I really, I could have come undone <laughs> to see the healing. And I thought you will not sit up in here and cry. <laughs> No, I, think I just could have come undone to see like the progress this child had made. And then I remember it was a significant, I want to be mindful, but it was just such a significant little thing that happened. Um, at the end of my sessions with kids who are processing trauma, I try to do something to ground them before they leave the session. And so I made up this game where we throw huge balls of slime at each other at the same time and we each catch one. So I'm throwing and catching at the same time. 
And if I could make a record of the giggles that come from that, <laughs> like the giggles as they're getting to throw slime at a nun and nuns throwing slime at them. And it's just, <laughs> just erupt into giggles. And it's actually a grounding exercise because without having to use hand-eye coordination, that's going to bring me back to the present moment. Mm-hmm. And so we would always play these games. And I remember this child looked at me and asked if we could show the adult um, in the room their game, our game. And I said, sure. So we were throwing slime. And this child looked at me and said, can this person, this trusted adult, take your place? Mm. And I said, sure. And I sat down and watched a family restored. Wow. And really could have come undone. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I feel <laughs> I feel so moved. And yeah, families. Families are, are messy too. There's just, there's so much. And I, I think of my own family. I think of those of, yeah, families around me. There, There's a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard and... What's coming to mind is I think even though I don't know those families and, and you know, even for you, sister, like I, I just met you and yet <laughs> I'm just filled with such immense gratitude for, like you said, the witness that you're able to to share and to and the healing that you're able to give to other people. You know, what a gift that is to be able to bring about that healing. And and to your point earlier, like to be that instrument for God to enable that healing mm-hmm. to work. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Do you want yeah, to take a moment? Do you want? Sorry, do you want to take a moment? No, mom? I'm good. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> I just cannot ever remember that. And I'm telling you, the the miracle of me not crying in that session <laughs> is like an act of God. It's really, truly, because I could have just, yeah, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to ask you just as a, because I'm realizing now that I've interviewed a number of Catholic counselors before, but I think you are the first Catholic counselor who is actually a religious a sister. <laughs> and naturally, one of the things, and, and I think about my own experience with mental illness and mental health, you know, when it comes to mental health in the, in the faith communities and in Catholic circles, you know, there's always like talk about praying things away sometimes. Ooh. And and. Right. And certainly, you know, people, I think, are are well-meaning. But as time goes on, I think we've seen certainly that distinction between physical and mental, emotional healing, but also spiritual healing. From your perspective, at what point do we maybe need to like seek out like that spiritual healing? And and perhaps like at what point do we need to seek out counseling therapy, like something outside of maybe spiritual direction? I'm really going to put my counselor hat on for that question. And this is how whenever I speak to ministers, because more and more people in ministry are wanting to know when to refer, like when do I need to say to someone I'm serving in ministry, perhaps like counseling may serve you. Um, So what I offer to people to help say, like, is it time for me to get a counselor? We want to look for distress in one of the key areas of our life. So are we having distress in our family relationships or our friendships, like in social domain? Mm -hmm. And that could be like in a specific relationship or the absence of relationships. Like maybe I'm not, I don't have meaningful relationships with either family or friends. Are we experiencing distress in our academic or work commitments? Um, So like, I'm not able to do the job that I signed up to do, right? Or I'm, and then I'll give an example of a diagnosis on what this looks like in all these domains. 
explore in the sense of self. So my relationship with myself and my experiencing distress and how I see myself, how I feel about myself, or my relationship with God, is there an experience of distress? If it's only God, then you could maybe begin with spiritual direction, you know, something like that. But if it's God and other things, and it's been, it's got enough intensity to like, or it's bothering you, and got enough duration or frequency where it's ongoing, that's a good time to consider a counselor. So if you've just had a bad day, like someone having one bad day out of a month, we don't want to be like, you need a counseling, you had a bad day, right? But if I'm having a bad several weeks and it's something that's gone on with duration and a level of intensity that's distressing to me, it may be something to get looked at by a counselor. So for example, depression. Well, in my relationships with friends and family with depression, I may have begun to isolate, Mm -hmm. even though it's not serving me. So this isn't like an introvert in their, you know, happy place, but it's an isolation that's not life-giving to me. If I'm struggling with depression, I may be missing deadlines and sleeping when I'm supposed to be working and not able to arrive to work on time, struggling to be focused when I am at work, struggling to feel motivated to do my work. If I'm struggling with depression and it's I may be thinking things are hopeless for me, I have no purpose, and then I may start to doubt God in the realm in the God spirituality domain. Maybe I'm starting to miss Sunday mass, right? Need to go to confession and I'm not going, and then don't want to pray anymore. Don't want to talk to God, having thoughts about God that I don't normally have. So that's like what depression looks like across all those domains. So you want to look for distress where it's bothering me, creating some issues, and it's been going on for a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. I think it's really refreshing to hear that from any Catholic counselor I talk to. But then, like I mentioned, the obvious first thing about you is the habit and the veil. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very low-hanging fruit thing to just be like, oh, like she's a sister, therefore, you know, she would always like push like, God, God, God. And, and I'm not saying here that God and prayer are not helpful. And like you said, you know, receiving sacraments, going to mass, receiving confession, all of things are so helpful. But what I appreciate is just being able to hear and, and this is, I'm sure the fruit of your work and your education, how you're able to so clearly define like, yeah, these are things to look out for in like this particular scenario for someone who may be struggling with depression. Like you said, it's not just one bad day, but to have those things like those red flags or or things at least to look out for. Sure. And I want to say something, you know, particularly to people who are out there telling people, you know, you're not praying enough. If you have a mental health, it is not good to pray in one world and live in another. And Mm. so when we use language like that, we really create dangerous dichotomies. Like God is in all these things and the human person is literally a relationship. Like we are a relationship, right? Our being is predicated on ongoing relationship with God. And so to, to, to say that like we can pray these things away and don't need to maybe get skills or medication or different types of treatments and interventions is really, it's non-Christian and non-Catholic. I would, so I would really say to be mindful yeah, I was just going to say, if you're the one who's been saying that to people, stop. <laughs> if it's the one, if it's been said. Sister says. Yes, 
stop. <laughs> and if, if you uh, are the one who's been said to, just understand, I don't believe that that is a fundamentally Catholic thing to say. Um, because it's not good to pray in one world and live another. God is found in all things. It would be like telling a person, don't take your medication for your diabetes. Pray about it instead. That is not the will of God for your life. And so that's an example of how it's a dangerous dichotomy. God permeates all things. And so we cannot compartmentalize him to that chapel. Uh, we need to go to that chapel because if I don't find some time for prayer, I won't find any time for prayer. And if I don't find him in the chapel, I won't, I'll struggle to find him in the world. But um, we don't want to make him a prisoner of the chapel where that's the only place where God is speaking to me and, and bringing his healing into my life. Wow. I feel very, <laughs> that that spoke volumes to me. And I think many times, and I'm sure for those listening, yeah, we can compartmentalize, like you said, like we can yeah, leave God in, whether it's like the Adoration Chapel or the church and not allow for him, even though he already is present, to kind of, to not recognize and, and to not see him in all things, in all places, and even in these difficult sufferings that many, many people experience. You mentioned this phrase earlier, like having a kingdom vision, recognizing that he is everywhere and he has domain and authority over everything. Authority in man, Rachel. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, so, so good. So thank you for that reminder. I think it's one that we need constantly because that's us as humans. Like we get so prideful and we think, oh yeah, everything is going great and I don't need him until it's not, right? And then you're kind of like, okay, God, where have you been? But he has been everywhere. Wait. It's just we haven't noticed him. It's like we haven't noticed him. <laughs> Waiting so. and ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love that word. Like it's authoritative to recognize that all of these things are like a part of our faith journey, like taking care of our mental health, taking care of our physical health. And now I'm speaking to myself right now too. All of these things are a part of our faith journey um, and like the desire for God that we flourish in this life. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you're coming up on 10 years of being fully professed as a <laughs> sister. And I would love to hear from you. You know, Here's to a lifetime more, you know, until God calls you home, whenever that may be that you will continue to just serve with joy. Like I said, the moment I saw you, I was instantly at ease, just your smile and your joy. But what is it about being a sister that enlivens you? I'm sure there's so many things, but yeah, as you kind of come up to that big anniversary. <laughs> yeah, so the first two things that come to mind, I mean, one, life and community. And it is the great paradox because it is hard, but it's also life-giving and it's like the stuff of our sanctification. And I know in my particular judgment, the bulk of the conversation with Jesus at my particular judgment will be the common life. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> All the wins and the fails. <laughs> but I don't know, it's just at the foundation, it inspires me. We struggle. We don't always get it right. We go in baby steps in our common life. We, you know, we're rock stars in the ministry, you know, all the shining lights and everything. And then we get home and we struggle to accomplish the simplest of tasks when it comes to relationships, but it's our way of sanctification. And so it just really, at the end of the day, inspires me that a bunch of women who don't choose to live with each other, we don't handpick one another. And 
outside of the gospel and Jesus, we never would have found one another to live with and share life with. And so it's miraculous, but like scandalously ordinary, you know, as we try to become family when the world would say it makes no sense for us to even be friends. That just inspires me about religious life. Like it keeps me inspired. This is the first thing. But then I will say like a huge part of my identity that's been growing more over the last like year and a half. And I think a huge part of that was preparing for final vows um, because my final vows were this past November. And so I think probably the reason this theme has been so present for me was because it was a part of preparing for final vows and just remains with me after that is this experience of like, of motherhood, you know? And I think probably working in the school really just brought that right into my face, (laughs) this experience of spiritual motherhood and like being a counselor is making space for like what God would have to come to life. And so it's the same in the school, you know, especially with kids who are growing and learning and struggling, you know, making space for them to grow. And so those are the two things like I, I am beginning to understand and love this identity as a spiritual mother and then um, the common life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen. So, so beautiful. And I love that you talk about spiritual motherhood because it's part and parcel of being woman and femininity, the feminine experience. And as you think about just all of the diverse pieces of your life, I think that was the phrase I used earlier. And just to see how it is that God has woven, you know, your own feminine genius throughout your life. I was wondering if you could offer a reflection of yeah, how you've seen your personal feminine genius develop and flourish to this point. So this is a complex topic, right? This feminine genius, like what women bring to the world. So we could talk about it in all kinds of ways, but the way I feel called to talk about it right now is the receptivity that is unique to femininity. Mm And I think there's another place where Pope St. John Paul II speaks about this, where he speaks about women as archetype. Mm -hmm. And so becomes the archetype for how all humanity is before God, which is receptive. When I think about my whole life, (laughs) like when I think about conversion, when I think about receiving this call to religious life, being in that receptive stance has saved my life quite literally like quite literally like being receptive to what God has in mind for me, being receptive to the graces like that I have title to by virtue of the sacraments and my vocation, being receptive and obedient to that has saved me, like it is saving me. Um, So that's the aspect of the feminine genius in my own life that I want to highlight because I was the least likely candidate to even desire things like receptivity or obedience. Those words repelled me at a certain point in my life. But I think they are qualities that women can teach the world about in a proper way. Not some of these strange ways that people are, you know, coming up with those things, you know, but in a proper way. A sign of authentic receptivity and obedience is not a shrinking away authentic receptivity and authentic obedience will unleash the human being. It will unleash all the gifts 
So what you will see is somebody on fire, not somebody shrunken away in a corner. Yeah. Yeah. The great paradox of the more that we are receptive and the more that we are docile, just how much more free. And like you said, just, I, I love that image of unleashing the gifts and the gift that we are, how that is activated once we first allow for ourselves to be docile and we hear, we listen, and then not just passively kind of take it in like, okay, great, but actually acting on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, Sister Josephine, thank you so, so much just for everything today, like just for sharing your, your fire, your zeal, your passion, you know, with me and our listeners. So thank you so much. And I was wondering, could you lead us in a closing prayer as we close out this episode? Absolutely. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your constant love for us. Through every moment of our life, through the gift of your Son, through the gift of your Spirit, and in the gift of our Mother Mary. Heavenly Father, help us as your children to just grow more and more aware of all that you're doing for us, to grow in a spirit of gratitude and receptivity before you so that we may flourish as your children, that we may be bearers of your kingdom, and that we may spread your love through the power of the spirit. We ask all these things in the name of your son and through the intercession of our mother, Mary. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Sister Josephine. Thank you. (laughs) A big thank you to Sister Josephine Garrett for joining me on the podcast today. You can follow Sister Josephine on Instagram at sr underscore Josephine. You can also learn more about the Sisters of the Holy Family of Nazareth by checking out their website, nazarethcsfn.org, and by following them on Instagram at csfn.usa. I've left links to these in the episode description below. You can learn more about the Feminine Genius Podcast by following us on Facebook and Instagram at FemGeniusPod. And you can listen and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many other platforms. All of this information can be found on our home on the web, FeminineGeniusPodcast.com. We'll talk to you soon, and God bless you always.